Well, good seeing you all tonight. Trust you're having a good summer. We're in the middle of it, aren't we? July is definitely the middle of summer here. We had a good break. It's good to be back from vacations. It's a, it's a good vacation when it's good to go and when it's good to come home, right? Both are true. But anyway, good to see you all tonight. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. And we are finishing out chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, uh, warning about asceticism. So uh, you say, well, boy, I don't think that's an issue anywhere today. Well, maybe let's wait till we study it, and you'll see there's certainly some, uh, some applications here for uh, where we live. And let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for our Bible study time, as well as our prayer time together. Thank you for the body of Christ. Uh, Lord, I am convinced that uh, really the real effective change, one of the key things you use is prayer, and what, what a privilege we have to, to pray for, uh, for everyone, really, for ourselves, for the saints, for the world, for the lost, for our leaders. Uh, what, what a privilege it is to intercede and see uh, you move as, as we pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on our study, also the uh, ongoing Roman study with the, with the teens and the moms there. So we commit our evening to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in a word, uh, Colossians is about uh, Christ and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. That's, that's the theme of Colossians. It's so interesting how we can uh, get every, so many of the things in the mix here and the simplicity that is found in Christ is kind of like, that's just too simple. But Paul brings us back and says, hey, don't get off track. This is where, this is where it's at. So uh, that's what we're studying. We see in chapter 2 the heart of the matter that Paul is addressing. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all, note that small word, all, which is really a big word, right? Uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then come down to verse 10. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And the thing I want to emphasize, and I've emphasized this before, but just to reiterate, is this emphasis on the sufficiency of Christ and how all is found in him in terms of wisdom and knowledge. Um, That is draped very strongly here with this idea of don't let anyone deceive you. Verse 4, after saying, in whom are hidden all the treasures, he says, verse 4, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. People come along and say, hey, I've got some other insight. You know, besides besides Christ. Uh, Don't let anyone deceive you with persuasive words. And they can be pretty persuasive. A philosopher comes along, send our young people off to college. They get these brilliant-minded professors with all kinds of philosophies and theories. Uh, n- n- no, uh, no, 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 I'm not, not, directing, this, not directing this anywhere. <laughs> I'm just playing with you. Anyway, uh, but no, they can be very persuasive, especially people of great intellect. My, you start thinking, well, I'm so stupid. This person's so smart. Uh, they, must know, they must have something here. Uh, don't, don't, don't let anyone deceive you, is what he says. And then you come down to uh, verse uh, 8, and he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So again, he's warning and warning them. 
And then we come down to verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has, which he has seen, is more accurate, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind. So strong warning all the way through here as far as deception. The emphasis on the sufficiency of Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone get you off track. So, um, by the way, thank you, John, for getting us up and running again. We definitely appreciate it. And Jason. Ah, yes. Thank you, Jason. Uh, how's your tick bite? Yeah, we need to keep praying. I didn't know where to put that on the list. We'll, we'll get to that later. But Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so here's uh, the concerns that he has addressed uh, as far as the Colossians, teachers that we don't need. Uh, philosophy, legalism, mysticism, asceticism. Now, it's one thing to study these things. I think that's fine. But to begin to incorporate it into your system of belief, now that's a problem. And that's what he's warning against here as far as the deceitfulness. And you can see we've worked our way through uh, these, philosophy, legalism, mysticism. And uh, we know what legalism is, right? Legalism is man-made rules. It's not not God's rules that he has given us, but it's man-made rules that say you're more spiritual if you keep my rules. Uh, What about mysticism? What's the idea of mysticism? Well, it's the idea of I am going by my experience, you know, my feelings, my experience. And there's a place for feelings and experience, but I say it should be the caboose. Uh, you know, Christianity is a, a thinking person's religion, faith. Uh, and uh, it's based on knowledge. We come to the knowledge of the truth and so forth. Sound doctrine. Okay, so we are now going to talk about asceticism t- tonight. Uh, there are so many places that people want to look for spiritual answers other than Christ. And he brings us back to Christ time and time again here. Uh, let's have somebody read... Uh, well, before we do that, let's uh, put up this about asceticism. Yeah, this is uh, uh, Homer Kent. Asceticism is the religious philosophy that teaches that depriving the physical body of its normal desires is a means of achieving greater holiness and approval from God. Such practices as fasting, celibacy, withdrawal from society, abandonment of possessions, and even self-flagellation are used in varying degrees, Homer Kent. So, there's really a good, a good summary of what we're talking about when we're talking about asceticism. Okay, uh, now somebody want to read verse, uh, verse 20. Who wants to read that? Yeah, Terry? If then you died with Messiah from the elementary matters of the world, why, though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to doctrines? Okay, thank you. Um, so he begins here, verse 20, mine says, therefore, therefore, if you died with Christ and the, the grammar is you did, it's a first class condition, which means, uh, it could be translated since, since you died with Christ, it assumes the condition is true. Uh, you did die with Christ and, uh, in saving faith, we identify with Christ. And that was his emphasis back here in verses 11 through 13. Uh, made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, as we saw there in verse 13. And so, uh, you know, there's an interesting uh, little preposition here, that preposition with. Uh, Did Christ die for us, or did we die with him? Yes, yes. 
Uh, we think we often talk about Christ died for our sins. And what do we mean by that? He took our punishment. He took our penalty. He died for as our substitute, right? A substitutionary sacrifice for us. What's the connotation of uh, we died with Christ? Is that a little different connotation? Yeah. There, that's it. That's it. And I think this relates now to the, 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 the power of sin. And we think about the penalty of sin, Christ dying for us. But us being identified with him in his death, we are now dead to sin. And uh, Galatians 6.14 comes in. Galatians 2.20, great. Galatians 6.14, too, where Paul says, I'm crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. There is a new relationship here that we have with sin because of our identification with Christ. Uh, in his dying for us. He not only canceled the, the, the penalty of sin, but the power of sin has been broken as well. Yeah. There, there you go. That's exactly what I had written in my little notes here too. Cross-reference Romans chapter 6. Exactly. Colossians chapter 3 isn't bad either. We're, we'll get there. <laughs> Lord willing. Okay, any other thoughts? All right, very good. Uh, so we are uh, dead to the world. It, it has no, uh, no spiritual say over our lives anymore. Uh, you died with Christ uh, from the basic principles of the world. Now this uh, phrase, translated basic principles, is one that Paul uses three times. Uh, we see it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. We see it in Colossians chapter 2, here in verse uh, 8, and then here again in verse 20. Now, this is an interesting word. There's one Greek word that is translated here as basic principles, basic principles of the world. And uh, let me put up a slide or two here. <clears throat> as such, Paul may simply be describing uh, a, the system of errors put forth by the false teachers at Colossae as being ridiculously child. Uh, this word, um, I guess I didn't give you the word, we'll get to it here, but it basically means uh, basic principles, just like we have translated here, or elementary things, very basic things, very simple things, the simple things of the world. And so he may be simply describing ridiculously childish and simplistic things in comparison to the profound and enriching truth found only in Christ. The world cannot rise above the world. And it's pretty silly when it's all said and done, pretty ba silly Stupid, basic stuff. At the end of the day, it's simplistically hollow. It leaves you incomplete and unfulfilled. That may be Paul's point, but there's also another possibility. And that is, uh, however, in addition to this, scholars point out that this word stoikion uh, was also used at this time to sometimes refer to supposed gods of stars and planets or in reference to physical elements such as earth, wind, and fire, water that supposedly controlled the destiny of people. These basic principles were thought of as the controlling forces of nature. So it might be, you know, he's talking about these simplistic things that the world kind of puts stock in as far as uh, what's controlling, uh, controlling nature and controlling life in that sense. Uh, so the idea here then would be if you died with Christ from the, from the basic, simplistic, natural thinking that rules the world, 
the way the worldlings think. Uh, and then he continues on from there. I think we've got one more slide here. Uh, whether elementary principle specifically refers to spirit beings, spirit things out here, <laughs> like stars or whatever, or to simplistic thinking related to uh, worldly or materialistic thinking, the point is that ascetic rules that govern such thinking no longer apply to us as believers. For the believer, Christ is now the controlling reality of the universe and therefore of our lives. We died with him. And that reality has severed our relationship with all these basic principles of the world. We are no longer in bondage to such foolishness. You know, we're not trying to appease the stars or whatever the forces are out here. Uh, Christ is now our Lord, and, and he is all in all uh, to us. Okay, um, he continues there. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? The idea here is we are still living in the world, but we're not of the world. So why are we acting like now trying to put ourselves back under that system of basic principles, basic spiritual air that governs the world? Uh, we're dead to the world. Uh, we've been transferred into the kingdom, as we saw in chapter 1 and verse 13. So if that's true, why, he's asking, why would we still be subject to the world's ascetic regulations. I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Our now is union with Christ, and we're free from, from those types of things. And no longer is this to, to mold our, our spiritual lives as it does those who are in blindness. Okay, um, any other thoughts there? Okay, let's continue on. Now let's have somebody read 21 and 22. Who wants to read 21 and 22? Okay, Dwinnett. Okay, <clears throat> so now he's uh, explaining what he means by these uh, these basic principles of the world related to these regulations. Uh, why do you subject yourself to regulations? Uh, these ascetic regulations are really pretty simplistic. Uh, pretty shallow thinking is involved here. And the thing about asceticism, it's all about the outward. It's all about the external. It's not really about the heart. It's all about these, these outward things. And this kind of comes out of what was the early budding of Gnosticism. Uh, and uh, the false teachers in the early church who taught an early form of Gnosticism held to what is called dualism. Uh, they believed the body to be evil and the spirit cage inside to be good. In response, they usually did one of two things. One, they threw off all restraints and said, it doesn't matter what we do with the body because it's evil anyway. I mean, it's not salvageable, so hey, <laughs> just do what you want to do. Uh, they thought as long as the soul is kept pure, no amount of body indulgence could affect it. Others practiced asceticism in an attempt to free the spirit from the evil influence of the body. Try to bring that body in line. The goal here is to keep the body from corrupting the soul. And the way you keep the body in check is through asceticism. You know, you beat the body. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I kind of took one of those two tracks in terms of uh, Gnostic thinking. But here he's talking about asceticism in context. Do not touch. Now, some have thought maybe he's talking about, you know, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, once good for a man not to touch a woman. He's talking about sexually in that context. 
And, uh, you know, it is interesting uh, in the history of the church, you know, you go along and you have this, uh, uh, this move towards the monastery and, uh, you know, these, these, and the development of the priests there who say, well, it's better, you know, not to marry. I'm married to the church. You know, this is more spiritual, uh, a form of asceticism uh, related to, to better not to touch. Better not to have any sexual relations. And so they got into that, that type of asceticism. But really, I think in context here, and most of the commentators agree here, that we're probably talking about the flow here relates to Jewish dietary regulations. Do not touch. Uh, do not taste. Again, dietary restrictions. By the way, in the New Testament, uh, fasting is neither forbidden uh, nor commanded. Uh, it's not commanded. It's not forbidden. So uh, it is interesting. I mean, we do see a place for fasting, obviously. But uh, it's interesting that we don't have a... It's not hammered. First uh, Timothy, uh, men who forbid marriage. You know, there's asceticism, right? It's got asceticism written all over it. An advocate abstaining from foods, asceticism, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Hey, you can get married. And Andrew and Brittany said, Amen. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more spiritual about not being married. Uh, and uh, there's nothing especially spiritual about abstaining from certain foods. Uh, God's created these things to be uh, shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything is created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. So, boy, he really hammers that down. Uh, now, there might be health reasons why you don't eat certain things. Um, you know, maybe, maybe a point of wisdom, you shouldn't eat a gallon of ice cream every day. I, I don't know. Maybe it's permissible in the summer. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, there might be some, some other reasons. But to say I'm more spiritual because of what I do or don't eat, no, don't go there. Don't say, well, you know, uh, since I'm a vegan, I'm very spiritual. <laughs> well, no, you're not. You're just wrong on that. Uh, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle uh, some of the uh, commentators are bringing out, maybe there's a flow of thought here where the sense is, uh, even a little, maybe a touch, a little sarcasm, don't even touch. Uh, the idea, do not handle, don't, don't even touch anything uh, to the point where, you know, you can't function at all. Uh, asceticism. And asceticism does get to that point of kind of craziness. It's crazy what some ascetics have practiced in church history. One never changed his vest or washed his feet. Uh, strict Mormons today wear holy underwear at all times. Check it out. I mean, uh, in the books. It's true. There was one guy in church history named Simon Stylites who spent the last 36 of his life on top of a 50-foot pillar, closer to heaven, I'm assuming. Uh, many have thought it extra spiritual to sleep on hard beds, to go without food or sleep for prolonged periods, or to not speak for prolonged periods, even years. Now, I admit that in some cases that might be a blessing to those around them, but it does not make one more spiritual. So that, that is certainly true. It doesn't make you more spiritual. A um, couple of quotes here. Robert Gramacki. Asceticism promotes self-denial and the deliberate refusal to have material comforts in order to develop spiritual sensitivity. Usually it's the fasting, celibacy, and the monastic life. It initially gives the impression of total dedication. But it actually is contrary to grace living and to the practice of a believer's position in Christ. You know, God has given us all good things to enjoy. 
wants us to enjoy these things. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's contrary to asceticism. I remember years ago, you know, I've been here long enough, I can go back years ago before, where hardly anybody except maybe you old-timers remember this, real old-timers. But in the very early days of the church, we had a situation where, um, you know, we didn't have very many people in those early days. And uh, we were all pretty, you know, common folks. And these people, who they, they, were, they, were, they were godly people. But uh, they all of a sudden came to me one day. They had a problem. Somebody in the church had bought a new car. I just thought it was a little much. It's like, are you kidding me? Do you think because you're driving your old wreck, you're more spiritual? <laughs> they kind of seem to think so. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, but I never forgot that. It was like, that's kind of a form of asceticism. that says, you know, we live a very simple life, and anybody that's kind of straying from that is, you know, getting off track. It kind of had an ascetic mindset, just a little bit legalistic too, whatever you might want to call it. But, uh, you know, this idea, you can't, don't touch, don't taste, do not handle. A uh, couple more quotes here. Another one from Robert Gamaki. God created sex, food, drink, and the desires to have them. Sin occurs through their abuse, not by their use. That's a good quote. Uh, these things are not bad, used in proper, you know, balance and scriptural context. Uh, Geneva Study Bible, Christians are to consider themselves pilgrims in this fallen world through which they momentarily pass as they travel home to God. The Bible sanctions neither monastic withdrawal from this world nor worldliness. So, um, yeah, that's a good balanced statement there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She took it a little further than what God actually said. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah. So like all of a sudden God's kind of made to be kind of you know go, going further than what he said. They're making it out that way anyway. Yeah. That's good. Uh, notice he says here, um, which all concern things which perish with, perish with the using. Uh, dietary restrictions all deal with food that is perishable. It's all very temporal. And therefore, it really doesn't matter very much unless God says it matters. Like under the Old Testament law, there were certain things that mattered simply because God said it mattered. <laughs> and it kind of comes down to a lordship issue. But uh, let's see, what do I got here? I think I'm ahead of myself here. I must be. I was going to, uh, I must not have put this in here, but uh, never mind. I had some cross-references here. The real issue is the heart issue. And uh, this is the bottom line. Certainly as believers, we practice self-discipline. But the point is we are not trying to achieve salvation or sanctification by our own efforts or within our own strength. Instead, by God's strength, we seek to live consistently with our already established position in Christ. And we do so on the basis of his strength, not our own. In other words, it's by grace. That's the difference. The, spirit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So uh, that, that's, that's the issue there. Okay, here's, uh, I think, where I was going. Yeah, here's my, here's my verses. Uh, do not, Christ talking, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. 
So he's making it, it's really not what goes into the mouth and into the stomach and then to eliminate. It's really about what's in the heart. That's, that's the real key issue. So the, the real issue is our attitude. It's really about our, our heart. And here again in 1 Corinthians, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So it's really not about the food. And yet, it seems like for the Jews, this has become a major thing. Of course, there was a lot of dietary restrictions under the law, which we are no longer under. And then he says, um, which is really the key issue here, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Here is the key defining issue. Uh, this form of uh, asceticism is grounded in the commandments and doctrines of men. It's rooted in human commands. And that's the whole issue. I like to ask people when they say something that's off, you know, do you have a verse for that? Do you have a verse for asceticism that says, now there's certain things we are forbidden. You know, we cannot, you know, <laughs> we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to be immoral. <laughs> and say, well, that's asceticism. No, it's not. That's, that's biblical uh, love. That's biblical obedience. So asceticism is lining up with not what God says. I mean, if God said, thou shalt not eat salt, I would say you can't eat salt. But God hasn't said that. Uh, so these are the commandments and doctrines, the teachings of men. That's really what's the issue here. All right. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Right, right. All kinds of things. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, really, the, the whole Roman Catholic system is given to that. Of course, now Protestants are kind of no, cozying up to that a lot. A lot of times, even like what you're saying, even Protestants doing Lent-type stuff. Uh, you know, only eat fish on Friday. Where, where do we ever get this idea? I mean, where, it comes from men, you know? It doesn't come from God. So all kinds of things here. Um, priests can't marry. Uh, you know, the nuns who take a vow of silence. And they're sitting over there. It's terrible what they go through. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I remember in my, my drinking, running around days, I had a friend. We, we kind of grew up together. But he told me he was going to give up beer for Lent. <laughs> uh, it was probably a good thing he gave it up for a little bit. But, you know, is God impressed with this? Anyway, all kinds of stuff. All right, let's uh, have somebody read verse uh, 23. Who wants to read 23 to finish us out here? Yeah, Tom? Thank you. So notice he says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. You know, on the surface, it looks sincere. I mean, these people are doing stuff. They're abstaining. You say, boy, they're taking it serious. Seems like their devotion is, is clearly there. And uh, they're serious. It's a, it has a sense of piety about it. 
And, uh, but everything is not always as it appears, right? They have an appearance of wisdom. Like, wow, this is, this is really the way to go. And notice he describes it in self-imposed religion. There's the key again. Self-imposed, not God-imposed, self-imposed religion. It's a self-made religion. And again, this is the key. According to the doctrines and commandments of men, as we saw in verse 22, now self-imposed, it's worshiping according to one's own agenda. It's really not found according to the scriptures. And this is nothing new. You go back to Cain. What was Cain's problem? You know, Cain and Abel, uh, they brought different offerings to the Lord. Well, Abel, Abel brought the prescribed offering to God. Cain, he was kind of doing his own rational thinking, saying, man, here, I'm going to bring you the, the best of my crops. You know, after all, I'm a farmer. You should be impressed with this. Uh, it was his own agenda, uh, self-imposed. What about uh, Nadab and Abihu with a strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10? Uh, what God think of that? He, he was not impressed, wasn't happy with it. So um, self-imposed religion. Uh, it might look to some like if you really harshly treat your body, beat your body or whatever it is, that that's serious, pious or whatever. But uh, really, it's not real wisdom. It's an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. And he calls it here false humility. This is descriptive of false teachers, as we saw in verse 18. It's phony humility. It's not true humility. There's biblical humility, and then there's false humility. I remember reading about a, a man in the Middle East there. Some, they were some you know, tourists over there, and, and they want to take a picture with him. He was over there in his ashes, and they want to take a picture with him. And he says, oh, just a minute. Let me straighten up my ashes. A little bit of false humility. Uh, let, let me really put on a show of piety. Uh, false humility. Asceticism is very self-oriented. And uh, this is exactly contrary to what we are to be about. Christ said again in Matthew 6, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So don't do it to be putting on this show. You know, they, they do it for an appearance. Hey, man, look, look at me, what I'm going through. It really looks good. And neglect of the body. Uh, neglect literally means unsparingness. The idea of treating the body harshly through self-denial, abuse. It looks spiritual, but it's not really spiritual. And so he says these things, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Why not? I mean, can't you really kind of beat that sin nature into submission inside you? Just try a little harder, right? Just beat yourself a little more. You know, we kind of just kind of have that mentality sometimes. Just be a little harder on myself and I'll be a little better. Uh, no. Uh, the root problem is the heart. It's not an external issue. And uh, it's the sin nature of the flesh, it really never gets any better. I don't care what you, what you do to beat it. No amount of rules ascetically imposed will worship, nor denying bodily appetites will change this sin nature. At the end of the day, the indulgence of the flesh is still there. And in fact, the more rules you feed the flesh, the worse it gets. Give the, f the flesh a rule, and it will want to break it. 
I don't know. There's something about the flesh. It's it just that forbidden fruit syndrome. Uh, the more rules. And, and I remember when I was in, in Bible college, you know, my, uh, one of my teachers who taught uh, church history was teaching us. And he said, um, as he has studied, it seems like those who were the most ascetic ended up falling off the rails the worst. Time after time, uh, you would see that. Uh, the pendulum would be over here, and it'd come over here. And, and the reason is, there's no victory there in asceticism, and how true that ear is. Uh, and yet, we kind of have that mindset. Another story, years ago, we had a family visit the church, fairly large family, and the guy called me, and he had one question. He says, I want to know in your church if you have any of the families who send their kids to public school. And uh, I said, well, yeah, we do. He says, well, then we're not coming back because they might corrupt our kids. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, I'm sure uh, your kids, because of your form of asceticism, if you will, are not going to be tainted by sin in any way, shape, or form. Uh, of course, I've wondered how that turned out as we went along because I'm pretty sure his kids had a sin nature too. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that probably came out as we went along and they were wrestling with that. Uh, it was just the mentality, just the mentality that I'm condemning everybody else who's not on my page uh, for doing what I do. Uh, lust never go away. The flesh is never gone. Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. They're there. And the only thing we can do to, we're never going to eliminate this reality, but we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't make any provision for it. Galatians 5.16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The spirit is the key. After uh, we have uh, Romans 7 and the great struggle with sin, we have the great chapter on the spirit in Romans chapter 8. 19 times the spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 8, more than any other chapter in the Bible. Uh, that's, that's the answer. Even for the believer, Paul does not deny the reality of the flesh. The issue is, how do you deal with it? How do you have victory over it? The answer is not found within yourself, but in the power of God who resides within the believer. We are to walk in the Spirit, moment by moment, submitting to Him. The flesh cannot be changed. It is what it is. No amount of asceticism will change it. However, we can be born of God through faith in Christ, and then we have God's Spirit living within us to empower us and that is the key. That's the key uh, all the way through here. Uh, yes? It certainly begins there. Absolutely. And, and then, you know, we have the indwelling spirit that comes with saving faith. Uh, we have a new empowerment. We have a whole new identity with Christ, as we've talked about here. So, I mean, all these spiritual heavenly blessings that are ours in Christ come to us in saving faith. Changes everything, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, people make New Year's resolutions, right? And uh, they're, they're determined they're going to change. Do they change? You know, you, what's that? Rarely. You, you know, you can train the flesh a little bit, right? I mean, you, you can kind of uh, make it behave to a certain extent by, I don't know, threatening it. You know, seriously, people see the cops, they slow down. You know, they didn't say, well, I couldn't help it. I just had to speed on. No, uh, 
you can kind of, but you know what? You don't really change the nature. You don't really change, not, not fundamentally. You don't really change uh, the sin nature. I don't care how many resolutions you make. Uh, I don't care how ascetic you become. You can't really change the human nature. I don't care how much of a glass jar you try to put yourself under, how much you insulate yourself, you know, get away on a hill out here in a monastery, you know, you're still going to have the sin nature. You're not going to have victory over sin until you know Christ. And that's the whole point in Colossians chapter 2. Christ is our answer. And he's not part of the answer. He's the full answer. Our sufficiency is found in Jesus Christ alone. It's not in our own strength. It's not in what we do. That's the whole point here. We can never truly change our sin nature. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leoparded spots? What's the answer to that question? Huh? Nay, nay. I thought first you said he may. (laughs) We're about to have a discussion. Anyway, no, absolutely not. Uh, Then you also may do good who are accustomed to do evil. Uh, Yeah, we just, you know, boy, we we need a spiritual miracle. We have to be born again, as the Bible says. Um, So, wrap it up here. Neither philosophy, legalism, mysticism, nor asceticism make any contribution to our spiritual lives at all. We need none of it. All we need, we already have in Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not lack. All we need is found in him. We are complete in Jesus. There in a nutshell nutshell is uh, the heart of what Paul is teaching us in the book of Colossians. We have everything we need spiritually in Jesus Christ. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in outside revelation, mysticism, asceticism, legalism, whatever all these other things people try to do to make themselves more spiritual. Our spirituality is found totally in Jesus Christ. He's our sufficiency. All right. Any other thoughts as we wrap up here? Yeah. I had a question. Yeah. Well, it's, in, it's an interesting study, fasting. Fasting is very consistently tied with prayer in the scriptures. And it's almost like it's a concentrated prayer where I'm setting aside my normal routine, uh, my focus even on normal eating and drinking patterns. It's not that you don't have anything. You know, there's different levels of fasting. People, you know, it, there's not a lot of regulation, not in the New Testament. I mean, you see the principle a little bit like you're talking about. Not commanded. But you do see it is suggested by Christ that, you know, after I'm gone, you will fast and, and so forth. And they did fast in the early church before it sent the missionaries out and that kind of thing. But it's really kind of an emphasis on concentrated prayer, but it's not for show. And it doesn't make you more spiritual either necessarily. I think it's just a form of concentration. So, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you have the conjugal relations, except for time of fasting and prayer, which would emphasize, yeah, um, a couple of things. Probably you want to be fairly regular in your sex life. <laughs> That's probably being emphasized there. As far as, but 
for a special period of fasting and prayer, you would set that aside. Yeah, that's a good, good cross-reverence in, I think, 7.5 there. Yeah, good. Okay, Tom? Yeah. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Tom. And I really think Galatians hits kind of both sides of that coin. I think there is a legalism related to salvation, which is deadly, any other gospel. But then it also has ramifications for sanctification. And and he kind of addresses both in the book of of Galatians. And uh, I think in one sense, you, you do have believers who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation and yet for their sanctification. They think they're, they're somehow w- working towards it as far as their own efforts through legalism. Yeah, which is your exact point. This is written to believers and the warning is there. Don't let anyone deceive you. You know, you can get off track to a point as a believer. Yeah, Vince? Yeah. Yeah, right. They don't have a good understanding. They may, you know, I remember when I became a believer, you want to get in your word and you read and you study and you just, you just want to grow. Yeah. And, and sometimes you don't understand what the text is saying. I, I was thinking a couple of days ago, and this says, you know, can you imagine a new believer getting to study and read in the book of Hebrews? You know, the first thing is, oh, then I can lose my salvation. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, the warning passages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen, brother. You know, the Bible is so strong. We grow in grace. And so, you know, we we start, probably most of us, has got some form of legalism. Everything is black or white, you know. And uh, I remember as as a new believer, there was a lot of legalism in me, I think. Even when I first got into ministry. I've, I've certainly grown a lot in grace through the years in my, and, the, and I think we've grown together as a church. But uh, yeah, we do grow. We grow in grace. And uh, yeah, for sure. Yes. Amen. Yeah. My wife and I were talking about this today as far as, you know, we're getting to be kind of seasoned saints here a little bit. And, and the younger generation, it's like, how do they think like that? But you know what? We used to be there, right? We were singing, why should the devil have all the good music? 
<laughs> anyway, they, but there, there is growth, you know, and I think maturity understands that and gives space for, for that. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not always right either. I was telling somebody yesterday uh, who happened to be wrong, be caught in a situation where they're wrong. I said, I have learned to be more, to be more um, uh, cautious as far as my dogmatism on some things. <laughs> I'm not right about everything. And after you're wrong a whole bunch of times, you learn to say, well, I, I think so, or maybe. <laughs> I might be wrong here. <laughs> you learn. All right. Anyone else? Good input. Okay, let's share some prayer requests here. You have prayer sheets? Anybody need a prayer sheet? 